I counsel people around faith crisis stuff, they're always just really, uh, you know, I got to get my kids out of the church, got to get my kids out of the church if they lose their faith. And they sort of think that being a Mormon is the worst thing in the world. But it is so common for kids raised by secular parents to, to, to become fodder. You know, I, I have a joke. What do you call a kid raised in a secular home? And the answer is an investigator <laughs> to a, to a, a religion, <laughs> yeah. you know, an investigator to Mormonism or to Jehovah's Witness. Because it is, I think, I think kids raised in secular homes have a hard time remaining secular. I, I don't think we as secular parents, and this is a total sidetrack to your story, but I don't think we as parents secular have figured out how to raise our kids in a way to where they feel full and then aren't aren't vulnerable, if, if you think of it that way, to mm-hmm. missionaries of whatever religious faith that come along. Because a lot of the people that attend my workshops and retreats, when they tell me their story of being converts, they were raised in secular homes. Mm-hmm. So it's well, interesting that that... In some, I, I guess the point I'm making is that in some, in some, to some degree, there's going to be this cycle where where generations go in and out of religion, and I just wonder if that's even avoidable. You know? mm. Well, I am not a pure rationalist by any means. I think I've already hinted at that by talking about my belief in other powers that are out there, uh, maybe extrasensory powers, at least beyond the five senses. Um, but I think that uh, I think that people generally are spiritual beings, and there is a part of them that craves spirituality. Not all of them, a lot of them, and I was one of them. So, um, if you're raised secular in an absence of any of that, then there's probably going to be a craving for it, and you may end up uh, going for the first thing that presents itself down the pike. Yeah, yeah. that reminds me of a great story. I got to tell you. Um, we, uh, on the mission, we have different general authorities who would visit, of course, and they would talk to the missionaries. And this was Elder, maybe his name will come to me, I can't remember. But, um, ah, doesn't make any difference. But he's addressing the missionaries. And you know, when you've got a general authority who's out there talking to the missionaries, they can let their hair down quite a bit. And it's not general conference time anymore. Thank goodness. It's so boring. But I remember this uh, particular general authority talking to all the missionaries. And they're out there. He says, now, when you get home, okay, when you get home, I don't want you to marry a woman because she can sing. You marry a woman because she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Oh, okay. You don't marry a woman because she can sing, i.e. for some spiritual reason, right? You don't marry one because she can sing, because I guarantee you. Marry for beauty, not for talent. Is that what he's saying? Yes, because you love her with, I understood what he was saying is, you love, you marry her because you love her with all your heart, not because you think she's some spiritual giant. Interesting. And this is how he's saying it. But you marry a woman because she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Not, you don't marry a woman because she, she can sing, because I guarantee you, if you do that, you're going to turn over to your wife in bed the morning after the wedding and you're going to say, sing woman, sing. Um, so that was one story he told us. He also told us that sounded like some projection there. (laughs) Who knows? He was telling you more about him than you. I I remember that. But he, he also said, when you get back from your mission, because you know, you're always being told, get married, get married, get married, because this is the Mormon plan. Now you've done your mission. That's part of the Mormon plan. The next part of the Mormon plan is get married and start producing baby Mormons. (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, oh, it's like Hooper talks about what sharks and jaws, right? It's a perfect evolutionary system. All it does is swim, eat, and make baby sharks. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like what Mormons are supposed to do. <laughs> um, but this guy, he was different. And, um, oh, he was, he was Dutch. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. But he says, when you get back from your mission, he says, don't go out there and get married to the very first girl you meet. I mean, he's actually giving us some, some different kind and important advice, I think. He says, because when you're on a mission, you can't touch girls. You can't have anything to do with girls. You're like, it's like you're on a desert. You're on a desert for two years. You are dying for water. And what I don't want you to do is after you've been two years in the desert, start slurping out of the first mud hole you come on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, he, but, but he's saying, you know, you're going to be really, really desperate. Don't latch on to the first Slurping thing you take out your of time. A mud hole. Yes, that was the expression he used. That was the expression he used, I've got to tell you. These are children of our Heavenly Father. <laughs> Slurping out of a mud hole is, I guess, a fine metaphor. It is, but uh, it's one I remembered. <laughs> yeah. After 40 years? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And you, you know, for you, the stakes would have been high because you would, you know, your your parents had had such a difficult relationship that you were probably thinking, I don't, I don't want to repeat the unhappiness in the home that my parents modeled, right? No, you're giving me way too much credit, John. No, you're, you're giving me too much credit because I know that I'm going to get married to a Mormon girl in the temple and everything is going to be perfect because Mormonism. Hey, Bob says Diager. Was it? Yes, was it Jacob. So thank Bob. Bob, thank you. Jacob the Yager. <laughs> How did you know that? Did he tell you the same story? I was trying to find it in my mind too. Or because he's Dutch? Dutch, yeah. Diager okay. is a Dutch name. and Yeah, he was great. Yeah. And Laura Lee says, my first husband married me because I could sing, LOL. So. Uh-oh. Did <laughs> you say her first husband? First husband, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so thanks, listeners, for uh, giving us the input. My it first wife, and I don't want to get into a lot of family stuff. For me personally, you share all you want. My first wife was a soprano. I can't know. She's a very high voice, very trained. She was a very, very good singer, okay? Um, but that's why I know this joke. What's the difference between a soprano and a terrorist, John? <laughs> Tell us. You can negotiate with the terrorist. <laughs> so high drama, basically diva. Soprano, yes. <laughs> Total divas. Sopranos are divas, <laughs> high drama. They have that reputation. Yeah. I don't want to offend any sopranos who might be watching. Okay, so you... Uh, you come off your mission, and do you go to BYU? Do you get married? What do you do? No, no, no. I, my parents are down in Austin, so I, I moved down to Austin with them. And um, frankly, University of Texas at Austin is right there in Austin. Good school. Yes, and uh, resident Hook'em Horns. tuition. Yes, yeah, Hook thank Horns. you very much. Yeah. Um, but re- in-state tuition. Yeah. It was so low yeah. at the time. Yeah, Texas it, is cheap. It really was. Now, it's not that way anymore, but at the time, I couldn't even believe what it was when I heard what it was. And so yeah. that was an offer I could not refuse. Yeah. Uh, going to BYU, I thought, yeah, I'd love to go to BYU. Because then there's all those girls there, right, who can appreciate what uh, a return missionary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. With the, uh, the RM smile. Yeah. Do you know what that is, John? Yeah. Celestial smile. Yeah, right here. Yep. Right? Okay. Yep. Yeah, so they know all that stuff, and, and uh, you know, that's because that's what's supposed to be happening next. But really, I'm down there at UT. I'm going to school down there. I'm getting involved in dance in the community as well as studying dance. My, my undergraduate degree, which I studied there, is a Bachelor of Arts with a major in dance. Yeah. So I studied dance there. My ballet teacher um, was Leon Danielian who was in his late 70s and had transferred down to UT from the American Ballet Theater where he was the director there with um, Mikhail Baryshnikov at the time. Wow. And uh, he was just one of these old style ballet teachers with the cane and walking around and his hips are shot because of ballet. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful person. One of these people that if he loves you, you are in. But if you do something to offend him, then you, you know you may as well just leave right now because he's going to hate your guts mm. yeah another just, diva mm, yeah i think so <laughs> but very very disciplined i mean if you're in class and you're at the bar and you're doing your stuff right there's a clock on the wall just like in most classrooms there's a clock on the wall god help you if he catches you looking at that clock mm. discipline let me ask you this uh obviously the the world of musical theater and the world of male dancing has a historic reputation of of being something that gay men do and mm. straight men don't do and I, I i'm not trying to feed that stereotype but i imagine especially in the 80s there there might have been people saying well you you dance that's sissy or oh you're gay or whatever or you just would have been exposed to other other gay men who would have been dancing now i this could be all wrong but tell me if that was at all a thing and if you were even thinking about homosexuality or LGBT people or whatever back then um, as a Mormon. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, no, there was nobody around going, oh, you're a sissy or oh, you're gay because you're a dancer. <clears throat> but I don't mean to be offensive by that. By the No, way. no, no. It's OK. Uh, it's very hard to offend me. No, no, no. Even my listeners. I just oh. I grew up in Texas, so I can imagine that possibly happening. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the 80s. <laughs> but there are all these gay guys. Uh, basically, um, uh, first off. Obviously, lots more women who are going to be dancing 
than men, or boys and girls, as Mr. Danilian would say, boys and girls. It doesn't make any difference how old you are. It's boys and girl dances. But there are lots more girls, but there's a, certainly a number of boys. There was only one other guy that I knew who was straight, okay? Maybe two in the whole dance department other than myself. And it's just being immersed in this culture where you've got all these gay guys who are around, you know, you're changing clothes. It's no big deal. It's not like anybody's coming on to me or anything like that. But they're very, very, very gay. But I sure didn't want to see it. I did not want to see that they were gay because that was causing an awful lot of problems inside me, mainly because of Mormonism, because I know that gay people are wrong and they're evil. Evil might be overstating it, but boy, are they wrong. Iniquity, yes. perverted, like those are... Kimball would have used that sort of rhetoric back then in the early 80s. Yes. Miracle, forgiveness, all that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm in this in this culture, and I, I like these guys, so I certainly don't want to find out that they're horrible <laughs> because they're friends. Um, so here's a story. I wrote about this back in a blog a while ago. It's called A Mormon in the Dance Department. That's the title of it, A Mormon in the Dance Department. And my friend, uh, Chris Caswell, Chris Caswell, uh, he's in the he, he's gay as the day is long, but I don't know that. I don't. I won't let myself know that. Okay, and this is how we live as Mormons, uh, probably in other areas as well. But we live not letting ourselves know things. <laughs> Some things are too That's dangerous well, well for us to know. So we spend a lot of time whistling past the graveyard. And I was this way with um, my friend. But here's the deal. I'm not driving to school. My folks live on the outskirts of town. I would take a city bus to a mall. It did not go all the way to our house. It went to a mall. And then my dad, who worked at the time, when he got off work, he would, he would come to the mall and he would pick me up and drive me home. Okay. And a lot of times he was very late picking me up because sometimes work went later than other times. So, but this day, this day, Chris Caswell needs a ride to his house, and he doesn't live that far from the mall. But I tell him, look, my dad comes and gets me at the, the mall, so why don't you come with me? We'll ride the bus to the mall, and then we'll wait for my dad to come get me. And he can, he'll, I'm sure he'll be happy to give you a ride to your house. Oh, okay. So now we're riding on this bus, and it's a beautiful day out. The sun is out. I'm sitting in the um, bus seat next to Chris, and I look over at him, and he's, he has this book open, and it's a play. And he's reading the script of a play. And it's called Bent. And I don't know what Bent is, but it has a rather strange cover on it. And I'm kind of looking at this and I say, um, Chris, what is, what is that book you're reading? And he says, it's a play. And I said, what, what's it called? And he says, Bent. And I say, really? What? I haven't heard of that. What's that about? And he says, it's about homosexuals. Hmm. And I said, Really? Why are you reading a play about homosexuals? I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Really? Why are you reading a play about homosexuals? <laughs> and he looks at me and says, because I am one. Whoa. What year is this? 84? Like 82, 83. Okay. Yeah. It was pretty early. That's pre-Magic Johnson, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I am one. I mean, pre-AIDS Magic Johnson. Yes. Yeah. And now I'm just, I'm rocked because now I can't ignore it. Yeah. You know, it's not just something that maybe he is, but maybe he's not. No, he is because he just told me so. So now, honestly, my entire world is starting to cant at an angle mm -hmm. because everything is going weird. But I've got to act normal <laughs> because I can't act like this is a big deal to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm just trying to act normal and trying to, you know, get the world to go back level. <laughs> so I didn't say much else to him. Um, and we get to the bus stop. And, and of course, now I've got to hang around him. I mean, I really need to go somewhere to get myself together because here's this Mormon boy who's got a friend who just told him he's gay. And uh, but now I'm stuck with him. So we're sitting there on the seat. It gets the, the, the bus gets to the end of the line at the mall. We get off the bus. And my dad isn't there because I'm scanning through the windows. Please let my dad be here when we get to the mall because I don't want to be waiting around with Chris. I've got to get myself together. And I don't know how long, much longer, I can keep acting normal. I know this sounds horrible, but this is the way it happened. Um, That's scary. It, well, I, I mean, when, when something, and I, I experienced this growing up in Texas, when you're taught something is evil and dangerous and dirty 
and perverted. And you're in, and those are the words that you associate with it. Then it's scary. And so you're, you're, I felt the same way around people who drank. I felt the same way around people who had premarital sex. Anyone who did anything that I was taught was evil scared me. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I think we come by that honestly. So we, we get to the mall and now the bus drops us off. We have to get out. We're standing there. We're waiting together. And where is my dad? And I'm going, oh my gosh. And it just took forever. It may have been 10 or 15 minutes, but it seemed like forever. And I am just trying to act as normal as I can. And finally, Chris looks at me and I'm thinking, I must be showing this all over the place. Chris looks at me and says, is this going to be a problem? Hmm. And I said, oh, no, no, no. It's fine with me. It's fine uh-huh. with me that you're gay. Uh-huh. I don't care that you're gay. Uh-huh. I have no problem with your being gay at all. Yeah. And he says, I mean, your dad giving me a ride to my house. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I just busted out laughing. I busted out laughing when they said, because I had been totally, totally misinterpreting him. And I had just made a total fool out of myself. I just laughed and laughed and he laughed and laughed. And all of a sudden it was like, it's okay. We're just two people. Again. Oh, good. We're just friends again. Yay. Yeah. Nice. So that's that story. Another story happened with, was with a guy who was in the dance department named Maurice Dancer. His last name was actually Dancer. Mm-hmm. He was this tall, lithe guy. Everybody liked Maurice. And um, I remember having a conversation with him once because he was so dang nice. And I liked him so much. This wonderful smile. But he's gay. And I actually talked to him a bit about that once. And I said, how, how is it that you can be gay, Maurice? How can, how can you be gay? And he was so kind and so nice to me. And he says, well, Radio Free Mormon, well, RFM. He says, <laughs> he says well, it's like this. You like girls, right? <laughs> and I said, yeah, absolutely. I probably started. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I do. Only girls. I love girls. More. Only girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. And he says, so if somebody were to come to you and tell you that you should like boys, would you be able to do it? And I said, well, n- no, no, of course not. And he says, well, it's, it's like that with me. It's the same with me, only different. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this very calm Maurice just telling me that, all of a sudden, the, the, the scales started to fall from my eyes. And I started realizing how silly this whole position that I was holding, mainly because the LDS church taught me this position, really was. And that's back in the early 80s. Yeah, but, that, but, then, you, but then they're prophets, right? Yeah. They're prophets of God, so yep. I'm sure you weren't done thinking about that. No. But... No. So where does your life go? So UT, or TU, as my friends at Texas A&M say. They call it TU? Yeah, they don't give it the respect. Those bastages. <laughs> at A&M? Texas A&M calls it TU. Okay, let me tell you an Aggie joke. Okay, my dad used to tell Aggie jokes, so I'm going to tell you this Aggie joke. Aggie joke is for the guys who go to A&M. Texas A&M. Okay. Not Utah State Aggies. Right. This is A&M Aggies. Okay. So, the, of course, there's a huge rivalry between UT and TU. Uh, and A&M. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so my dad would tell this joke. He'd say, yeah, this, uh, some, some guy, some Texan went into a bathroom, and, he, saw, and um, he sees over here at this stall this, um, this Aggie, this Aggie who's using the John. And as he's standing up, after he's done, he pulls his pants up, and a quarter falls out and right into plop what he's left there before he flushes. And the, the guy stands up and, puts his pants on and turns around and is looking down at that mess where that quarter in it. And he's just standing there and he's just thinking and thinking, this is the Aggie, by the way, just thinking and thinking. And finally he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out another quarter and he goes plop and he throws it in. And finally this Texan, he can't take it anymore. He has to know. He says, what are you doing? I mean, I saw the, the, the quarter plop in by accident and now you, you put in another quarter on purpose. What are you doing? And the Aggie looks at him. He says, well, you don't think I'm going to stick my hand into that for 25 cents, do you? 
<laughs> Aggies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, much love, much love to my Longhorn and Aggie friends out there. What? Uh, <laughs> oh, you're pointing there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Good school. Okay, so you're you're at Texas University, of Texas, and you're studying theater. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fair and enough. were you in the institute? Were you st- going in? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. I got off on the interesting stuff, the non-Mormon stuff, for a second there. Um, all during this time. Okay. I am studying Mormonism because I have suddenly become uh, a self-appointed apologist. There is uh, something that really appealed to me about the fact that people attacked the church, and they would attack it. There were bookstores. They'd have book sections about anti-Mormon stuff. And uh, during this time, there's also Ed Decker, the early 1980s, and the Godmakers, and the book, and the movie, and everything, and it came to our town. So it was very appealing to me. So I study, study, study. I mean, I could tell you all the things I did to study, but let's just say I read and I studied an awful lot of stuff. Went to institute class all the time. Um, I do want to tell you a little bit about David Knowlton. Yeah, I know David. I saw him at a Chinese restaurant just the other day. Did you? Yeah. Well, we were at UT together. Oh, that's so cool. Of course, we were completely different parts of the campus. Uh, I don't think he was anywhere near the, the drama department. But Institute, yeah, he was there at the Institute building, and, and I saw him on Sundays because we had church at the Institute building for the young, uh, the student ward. So... Uh, he said some things that really bothered my TBM soul back at the time that I really found objectionable. And I think I've mentioned this, Tim. Uh, things that I would not find objectionable now, by the way. But I remember. T- what, tell our listeners who that is. Or, David or, or I can. Or I can if you. If you. Uh, could you? I'll, I'll just tell you that right at the time, he was, uh, he was, um, I, was he a doctoral student? He was a postgraduate student of some sort. Um, and I think, yeah, would you? Yeah. So when I was at BYU in the early 90s, uh, this is during the September 6th time where, where the church was going after intellectuals. David, uh, so, you know, there's the September 6th getting excommunicated, but there's also a group of BYU professors on campus that were liberal. They were advocating, you know, feminism. They were pro-abortion. They were trying to sort of show support for LGBT rights in their own direct way. And David Knowlton was a professor at BYU. I think he was a sociologist. And I remember he published an article um, on phallic symbols within Mormonism in Sunstone Magazine. So he would show all these different Mormon temples and Mormon buildings with huge phallic symbols. Um, and I thought that was pretty bold uh, to do that as a BYU professor. But where he really got in trouble is he focused on Latin America. And there were some, I think there were some Mormon missionaries who got killed. And there was a lot of sort of uh, communist sort of uh, activism sweeping Latin America, especially Peru. There was the shining light. Uh, and anyway, some Mormon missionaries got killed. And he, I think he wrote some articles about what it is about Mormon missionary culture that might make them vulnerable to communist or sort of guerrilla Latin American groups. And I think the church got really upset. So David Knowlton ended up getting kicked out of BYU along with Cecilia Conchar-Farr and Gail Houston and others, their continuing status wasn't renewed. And eventually David Knowlton ended up at UVU, where I think he still teaches to this day. And he's a great scholar and a great thinker and a good guy. And not not that this matters, but he I think he's also gay, openly gay. And <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with him being kicked out of BYU. But anyway, just a great guy. And you knew him way back when, before any of this happened? Before any of this happened back in the early 80s, and I think even uh, beyond the early 80s, but in the 80s. Um, but like I said, my TB, once, once he stood up in church and fast and testimony meeting, and he said something about, you know, the gospel. Um, if it makes you happy, you live it. It makes you unhappy, you live it. And I was just indignant inside myself. I thought, no, if you live the gospel, it will always make you happy. It will never make you unhappy. What are you talking about? Yeah. So once again, there's that aspect of me. But the main thing that I remember about David Knowlton was when we were te- taking a class together, uh, the institute director was teaching it. His name is Brother Sill. And uh, he was a great guy. But he's teaching a class on the book of Abraham. And Nibley's book, 
Abraham in Egypt had just come out. So uh, this is a very special class. Uh, not just anybody can get into it, you understand. You either have to be, what was it? I think you either had to be postgraduate or a return missionary. So I'm a return missionary. I'm a dance major. So I'm going to this Book of Abraham class. And we've got this book, right? And it's Hugh Nibley. And so I think, okay, great. And I think I understood the first chapter pretty good, which is just basically a reprint from a new era uh, or new improvement era article that he'd written for the masses so I could understand it. Everything else was total gibberish to me. But at the end of the class, the assignment was um, that each member of the class, and there's maybe eight people in there, and David was one of them, uh, do some kind of a presentation about some aspect of the book of Abraham. And at this point in my life... um, so I've been a member for four years and I've already been on a mission and back. My understanding of what you do when you give a talk or a presentation is all you do is you say what other, what general authorities have said. Okay. You don't vary from that. And as long as you do that and quote the, the basic scriptural proof texts, right. To support it, you're good. So I did something along those lines. It was totally unimaginative, uncreative. But David Knowlton gets up there and he gives a presentation about something that was completely novel. It was his own, uh, his own understanding, his own insights into the book of Abraham. And I was astounded by it. And I thought, well, he must be doing the same thing I'm doing, right? Because a good Mormon doesn't, is not creative. <laughs> a good Mormon is not creative at least not doctrinally or theologically. And I went up to him afterward, and I think I bowled him over. I was so enthusiastic about what it was that he did. His eyes got big behind his glasses. And I said, that was so incredible. That was so fantastic. Where did you get that information? Well, I didn't get it from anywhere, from the book, from the book of Abraham. I just saw that myself. That was significant to me. Suddenly I realized, wait a second, you mean it's possible to actually look at the scriptures and see things that other people haven't been seeing before or haven't talked about before? Or just to parrot what a general authority thought or interpreted a scripture to mean. Yes. Yeah. And this is one of the things that happened in the 1980s is that I immersed myself in LDS literature, whether it's the seminary manuals, no, the institute manuals. The big, thick ones, the huge ones. And I read through all of those along with the scriptures as we're going through, I mean, myself, in my room. That's, I was doing it on my own. And um, reading all these books. And uh, I was very much into doctrinal books. Uh, the Sidney B. Sperry Symposium they had every year. And they'd have mostly BYU professors apparently come and present uh, papers. And then they take the papers and collect them and put them in a book. And I would always love it when I saw those. Because I'd go and read those. And studies in scripture. All these things I'm reading. And it soon came to be very obvious to me that there was a certain limitation on Mormon doctrine. Okay. When I first joined, it seemed incredibly expansive. It seemed huge. I couldn't keep track of it all. I mean, when I first joined the church, I had trouble keeping the first vision separated from Moroni's vision, right? But it seemed very vast, but I continued to study, and it seemed like all of a sudden you bump up against the edges, and now you can't go beyond that. And in fact, you're told by general authorities you're not to go beyond that. Don't go beyond that. This is all that there is, and there isn't any more. So then I stopped reading those types of things. It also seemed to me that the vast majority of BYU professors who are writing scholarly papers and having them published in the Sidney B. Sperry Symposium are kind of just doing the same thing. They're not trying to find out anything new. They're simply regurgitating stuff that's already known. There were some exceptions to that, and I would make notes you know, and try and figure things out, and, and I appreciated them. So that is basically what went on for the 1980s. Now, apologetics-wise, I'm out there and um, I am trying. To, I write a you know a manuscript responding to anti-Mormon claims. There's a friend of mine, a dear friend from musical theater, who joined the church or was investigating the church. She has family. They give her a book. It's called Answering Mormons' Questions. And it's 33 chapters. It's a small thing, right? 33 chapters saying these are typical questions that Mormons ask, and here's the response to him, just to knock him off at the knees. And she had a question, and I answered it for her. I was able to answer it to her satisfaction. I said, can I see that book? Yeah. So can I have it? Yeah. So I took, I mean, I took hours and hours and hours, I mean, days over several years writing responses 
to this book and made it into a manuscript. And of course, nobody wanted to publish that, but that's okay. It was a good exercise for me. And um, then Dick Bear comes to town. Dick Bear, because he's the associate of um, Decker, Ed Decker. So he comes to town and he's got the movie, The Godmakers, and it's being shown at the Hillcrest Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. So I said, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to go to that thing. Wow. <laughs> and so I get a couple of friends of mine, I think it was the Robinson brothers from Institute. And we all go there. And I also, from another friend, I borrow this bright yellow t-shirt and on the t-shirt, you know, the, the t-shirts that say, I'd rather be fishing or I'd rather be hunting or anything. This one has in big letters, I'd rather be Mormon. Wow. So we go in there. That's we sit. gutsy. <laughs> but I would have been, you know, I would have been scared to see the Godmakers because I would have had this charge about how it's anti-Mormon. It could ruin your faith. It's scary. It's evil. It's of Satan, just like gay people, right? So I knew they were showing the Godmakers in my hometown. But it wasn't until I lived in Logan, which would have been in the 2000s, where I actually saw the Godmakers for the first time. Because mm -hmm. I just would have thought it's, it'd be like playing with the Ouija board. You just you wouldn't do it because it's evil. So I'm surprised you did it. Yeah, I don't know what got into me. But I did have two friends go with me. That was nice. So, uh, so I sit right there in the middle of the front row because I want to make sure that that uh, Dick Bear can see me and see my T-shirt <laughs> sitting there. I'd rather be Mormon while he's up there giving his whole presentation. And then afterward, he opened it for questions, and we got. But into you saw it. the movie. Oh yeah. And what did you think of it? Um, I thought that uh, it wasn't very well done. Um, I probably had already heard a lot of the contents of what was in it before going there. Of course, there's the famous animation part. And um, what did I think of it? I think that when I'm in that frame of mind, what I'm focusing on are the things that they get wrong mm -hmm. or the things that they disagree with or the things that they're making fun of with animation um, as opposed to thinking, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, criticism. Right. You know, because at that point, there are no good criticisms. No. Against no. Yeah. the church. You feel attacked, so it creates the backfire effect. and Yeah. You yeah. believe in stronger, yeah, basically. Okay, so um, so tell us about finishing your career at UT and finding a wife and then and starting a career and that sort of thing. Okay, and how Mormonism kind of progressed and all that. Yes. Well, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, of course, with family stuff because uh, I have two ex-wives now, children with both. Things get messy fast. Um, I did have to convert my wife. And baptize her. Was she at the UT? Yes. Okay. So, uh, but that was in, baptized her in 1983. Live to regret it. Hope she's not watching. <laughs> hey, you be nice. I'm not digging. Don't dig your own, don't dig your own grave. I'm not digging. Oh my gosh. No, I went out of, out of my way to, to baptize <clears throat> my first wife. So, um, but that, so that was uh, 1983. But she you was baptized. The temple? Oh yeah. Which temple? Dallas. Uh, the Dallas temple wasn't built in what, what year? 1985. Okay. Okay. I hadn't said the year yet. I had said when, when the baptism was. Okay. So you was were new. married in 85, mm -hmm. right when the, when the Dallas temple was brand new. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so then, you know, I've graduated from undergrad, with a degree in dance, which really wasn't going to help me a whole lot. So I worked at a bank for a year and a half. Then I went back to law school. Because. Where? UT. Okay. Yeah, University of Texas School of Law. So I went there for three years. And while I'm doing this, just to keep my sanity, thank goodness I was a member of a jazz dance company, Third Coast Jazz Dance Company. Uh, so I'm going to school and working half time as a law clerk and going to, to dance class and stuff in the evening. Just, just for listeners, I just put a link up to the cartoon for the Godmakers uh, under YouTube. It, it, it's it's titled something like "Band Band Mormon Cartoon That the Church Doesn't Want You to See." What is it? What is the title? "Band Mormon Cartoon Extended Version." It's got two million views. But uh, just go Google it. Just put "band" in front of anything. Go Google it. It's fun <laughs> and it's interesting to watch. Yeah, and it really is. You know, I'll just say when I watched the Godmakers, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, 
I was split because it certainly was schlocky mm-hmm. and it certainly was trying to take us down. But I was amazed at how much truth it had to it, especially the part about alienation. Because I think, if I remember right, they interviewed some people that had left the church and they talked about being totally alienated and estranged from their parents. And I was like, whoa. Plus the theology about becoming a god someday, that was legit. I mean, that was what people, Mormons led about being Mormon. Now the church has since downplayed that and distanced itself from that doctrine. But the Godmakers got a lot of things right. Okay, they got, Satan wore a different apron. You know, they, they came after the temple ceremony. They showed people doing the temple ceremony. Again, legitimate, weird, creepy stuff that the church ended up changing. Uh, I don't know where I was going, except for the fact to say that I really do think the Godmakers was an example of how to change the church because the church was offended by the Godmakers. It was effective and the church ended up changing the temple ceremony and downplaying the role of theosis or man becoming gods, I think directly as a result. So I didn't process any of this until the past maybe 10 or 15 years. It certainly made a lot of evangelicals hate Mormonism or mock us or sort of other us as non-Christian. But for me, looking back, the two things that were most profound about the Godmakers were, number one, it was more accurate than not. And number two, it really did change the church. And I've been all about trying to help Mormons, but also, if, if possible, secondarily change the church. And it's just curious to look back on that now. It was a hated thing. And now I kind of think it was a really effective thing. You know, what do you think? I think that I had never thought about the God makers being any force for change in the church before this. You may be right. I think that the church uh, has a track record of making modest changes in response to public embarrassments. And usually they excommunicate the people who cause the embarrassments. And then they make the modest changes and say it's revelation from God. And certainly has nothing to do with that embarrassment that happened. And that person's never going to be thanked or reinvited back into the church. Um, they just can, the caravan moves on, so to speak. And I should, yeah. And I should also add that Ed Decker is, is, is alive. He lives in Southern California and he listens to Mormon stories sometimes and he's texted me. So Ed, if you're watching, shout out to you, Ed Decker, you're still alive. Oh, really? So he used to be up here in Issaquah. Yeah, no, I, I remember that, but he, he told me he's like in Palm Springs area. Oh, good. Well, it's probably better for his health. Yeah. Yeah. He's certainly getting up there. Um, Okay, so uh, you get married in the Dallas Temple, trying to live the Mormon dream. How long were you married? Oh, gosh. Is it okay if we don't even go into time frames on that? Okay. As far as, as, as yeah, being totally. married, I just don't want to start down that road. Not, not that there's anything terribly um, offensive about how long a marriage goes, but um, I would want to talk yes, to you about... Yes, okay. I don't want you to answer anything you don't want to answer. Yeah, yeah. I probably already overstepped earlier. Okay. And... Um, I'll probably do it again if I keep going. Okay. But um, no, so I'm really, really into Mormonism. By the way, um, this this uh, studying, this apologetics, which goes on for all of the uh, the 1980s and even beyond that. I mean, I read every apologetic work about the um, about Mormonism, and there are several that are produced. I'm reading the scriptures. I'm marking them up. Um, I am the Book of Mormon answer man. Is what I wanted to be. Anytime anybody's, got, anytime anybody's got a problem, I'm the guy. Missionaries are teaching someone, they got questions they can't answer, they call on me. So I'm in law school, and it is my last semester of law school. It is the spring of eight. <laughs> I am a little bit older than I look. I almost said 1889. It's 1989, and I take it upon myself now to create a curriculum for an institute class called Defending the Faith. And the idea is it's 12 classes, 50 minutes long each, and dealing with the most commonly heard criticisms against Mormonism. So I do that. I get the okay from Brother Sill, who's known me for about 10 years by now. He did sit in on the first couple of classes, though, just to make sure that everything was going okay. And then finally he said, that's fine. He can do it on his own. And ended up taping all of those on cassette tape. So over at the RadioFreeMormon.org website, I have now managed to put up six of those classes. And they're called Radio Free Mormon Defender of the Faith. And then there's parts one, two, three, four, five, six. And I still have six more that I have to format so I can put those up. Yeah, people are enjoying those. 
Are they really? Because I kind of worry about it because I know it's like exactly the opposite of what I'm doing as Radio Free Mormon, but it's a very real part of my development. And a lot of people have wanted, even from the very outset, for me to sort of go in as I'm talking 30 years ago and have the, the Radio Free Mormon today like countering what it is I'm saying back then. And I, I understand why that is. And I, I thought about that for a while, but I also thought, you know, I think that it's important to allow that to stand on its own. Okay. Uh, sure. I could go back and I could cut myself down or I could say, yeah, that's what I thought then. But then I learned this or something, but I can do that in other formats. And I think I have in many other formats, but I, I think that I want that to stand as a representation of who I was and where I was 30 years ago. Yeah, I think that's cool. So you start developing the identity of being a defender of the faith. Mm -hmm. um, you start a law practice, I'm assuming. I, I joined a prosecuting attorney's office in Washington. In Washington State. Yeah. Okay. And so we won't ask about your family. That's totally awesome. But talk about your advancement in the church. Did Were you serving... In callings, were you wanting to be a bishop? Were you? I had this idea that I would be a mission president. Yeah, a lot of us did, I think. Really? Yeah. I, mean, I think I wanted that on some level. Yeah. But you know, I was very active, certainly served faithfully in callings, um, but I have always been a person who didn't really fit in. I feel. And that is why I have never advanced in leadership roles in the church. The furthest up that food chain I ever got was about 1998 or so when I was asked to be a second counselor in a small wards bishopric. And I got released early from that. You know, so um, I think it was very clear to the people who make those callings and extend those callings that I was a person who did not fit the mold. And I would teach, I was somewhat of a popular teacher in church. But frequently, I would be approached by people who were, I don't know, in leadership roles, and I was asked to follow the manual because I would not follow the manual because the manual teaches us nothing. There's no purpose to the manual except to teach us what we've already been taught. And I think that's, that's, that's against the definition of the word. How do I teach you something that you already know? Rich, Richard Bushman once told me that Sunday school is not... Uh, a school. It's not the purpose isn't education. It's to reaffirm the doctrine that we all are supposed to believe. And so it's more of a ritual than it is a classroom. Yeah. And I, I think that's pretty wise and astute. Oh, I think it is too, because uh, it's come to me that we have teachers throughout the church. I mean, that's got to be the most populous calling, right? Because we have teachers over every group. And we've got this, uh, this class you're supposed to take teaching no greater calling. We talk about how important teaching is. And it struck me some time ago that it's strange that the church puts such an emphasis on teaching when teaching is the last thing they want to do. It's indoctrination, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Lesser minds would call it brainwashing. Yeah. But yeah, indoctrination. You are supposed to get this over and 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 over again so that you will never walk away from it. Meanwhile, of course, the reality of what's going on is people are getting bored stiff because they're hearing the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And they're walking away from it. Yeah. So you're trying to liven things up. Oh, yeah. But that's, that's perceived as trouble. That's a kanwa, as we would say in Japan. Yeah. That's forbidden. Yes. Yeah. So um, my most recent experience with teaching was gospel doctrine class from 2006 to 2010. So I went the entire cycle, all four years, and we, I would teach it in the, um, oh, the chapel. So everybody sit in the seats after sacrament meeting. And um, people had one of three responses. Now, the first response is there's a the, the third of people. They don't want to be at church anyway. Yeah. It, it, they, they, they just, they're not They're interested. bored. They're sleeping. Yes. They're yeah. only there because they have to be there. Yeah. Then there was another third who thought my class was the best thing they'd ever attended in their whole life. And they're just like hanging on every word. Um, and then there's the other third who hate it. And there's at least one, one sister, Sister Waters, I don't mind using her name, who hated it so much that she almost, uh, she, she wore a path in the carpet between the chapel and the bishop's office because she went there so much to complain about me after class. You know, I, I, had, I had almost the identical experience teaching Elders Quorum in Logan in yeah. 2004, 2005, 2006. 
And I described it the same way, a third, a third, a third. So either we arrived to that separately or we heard it from one or the other. But it's funny, I had the exact same thing and Bishop Farmer was always being complained to by the disgruntled third in my elders quorum. It wasn't very fun for me to feel like I was spoiling people's Sunday. I was just trying to d dig for the meat, go deeper, and uh, I really feel like I'd good at trying to educate, trying to inoculate people, and I just felt like it it, it was more disruptive than it was constructive. Hmm. That was a disappointment for me. Yeah. How about well, for you? Well, the only reason I knew about it is because I got some reports back because there were other members in my class who really liked it, right? And they were in somewhat leadership positions. I mean, it's in the ward and they're in the executive committee and they are present when these things are being talked about, right? About my class. And I remember I had a good friend, a couple of good friends talk to me and say, you know, they were there and say, you know, do not be listening to this. Okay. That is the best class that has ever, that I've ever been to and people love it. So don't be listening to this person just because they're the squeaky wheel. They should not be getting the grease on this. So that went on for four years and then, and then I was released. Um, but no, really, uh, I would study for, oh, four to six, even up to eight hours every week for just for gospel doctrine class. I'm putting in tons and tons of time knowing I'm obviously never going to be able to cover all the material I have. And my goal wasn't so much, to, it wasn't to inoculate, but it was definitely to get beyond what it is that everybody's heard. My goal was to make sure that everybody who comes to my class learns something and not just hears the whole stuff they've heard over and over and over and over and over again. And so we had a, a lot of fun. There were a lot of interesting experiences there. Oh, can I tell you one of my favorite stories? Yeah, please. Here's one of my favorite stories is that I would, I would just get so hyped and I put so much uh, emphasis and work into preparing that I always felt kind of nervous before the class. You know, how is it going to go? Is it going to go well? Is it going to go bad? Am I going to goof it up? Kind of like the feelings I have in this interview. <laughs> and here I'm teaching now, not in the chapel, but in the Relief Society room. So it's really packed in the Relief Society room in the chapel. They all kind of spread out, but it's packed in there. And I'm, I'm given this whole uh, class and I feel like I am on fire, John. I am just hitting it out of the park in this class. And I, I did not feel that way all the time, but uh, doing a great job. Everybody's loving it. Everybody's eating it up. And I get done. We have the closing prayer. And there's this very elderly gentleman on the front row. Very elderly. He's in a wheelchair. And he says, he says, um, Brother Radio Free Mormon, uh, <laughs> would you come here? And I, I go over. He said, I want to tell you something. And I'm just going, okay, well, he's going to tell me how great my class is. And I need to be gracious. Okay, just be gracious and say thank you, because that's what you do. I learned that in showbiz, right? Um, and he said, come down. So I lean down to him, and I'm just waiting for what he says. He says, um, your fly is open. <laughs> and I, I look down, and it's not just open. It's way open. And I go, oh, my gosh, how long has this been going on? And I remember I went to the restroom before class. And I went, I have been parading up here thinking I'm knocking it out of the park <laughs> and I am open for business. So that was a funny thing. <laughs> so just, just, I, I really relate to your experience. Uh, cause I thought I was a great teacher too. And I thought I was enlightening everybody and doing the real Mormonism, which was going deep and caring about truth and caring about learning and glory of God, it's intelligence and all that stuff. And, um, and you know, having really mixed results, uh, and probably a little bit prideful. I'm not saying you were, but I was probably a little bit prideful in that. Uh, but, um, I, it's my observation that people like that are very vulnerable to ending up where we've ended up in terms of out of the church, because the people that are like, ah, oh, whatever the church, the doctrine, the theology, I don't care. I'm just in it because it feels right. Or it, it's a good place to raise your family, or this is what we do. Those people actually uh, sometimes are more secure in the church. But if you if you take the doctrine and the history and the theology seriously, if you give it your all, if you care about truth, especially in the '90s and 2000s, that's going to take you to places that you you shouldn't go if your primary goal is remaining faithful. <laughs> so, there be dragons here. Yeah, I can see. I'm just saying, I can see where this ends up just from how you're talking about it because. We don't want truth as Mormons. We don't want to go deep as Mormons. 
we don't want, you know, it's not your job. It's the, it's a general authority's job to tell us what to think and to feel. It's certainly not some Yahoo Sunday school teacher's job or some seminary teacher to go deep and tell us about the intricacies of polygamy or to help reconcile the book of Abraham. That's not what's going to lead to healthy, happy Mormonism. So I can already see the writing on the wall in your story as you're talking about it. Meeny, meeny, tikalu parsing. <laughs> what is that? The writing on the wall. Yeah. Book of Daniel. <laughs> anyway, yeah, absolutely. That's the last thing that Mormons want to know is the truth. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Because they're all about the truth. But honestly, that's the last thing they want to know. And they will avoid hearing the truth at all costs. Right. And I certainly did for a long, long time. Um, I can go back to even when I was reading through the New Testament the first time on uh, before my mission. And I can't really understand this very well, you know, and um, the Gospels, eh, okay, I can understand that, okay, then I'm getting into Paul, and for crying out loud, what the heck is he talking about? And I'm just reading it so that I can have read it. But there are places where he's saying things that are completely different from Mormon doctrine, at least the way I'm understanding it. Yeah. That, that doesn't sound like Mormon doctrine, Paul. Right. What's wrong with you? Yeah. So I remember very specifically in my head, turning my face and walking past what he was saying. It was whistling past the graveyard. When I'm encountering something that doesn't support what it's my beliefs and what it's supposed to be, well, then I sort of ignore it and keep walking on until I encounter something that does. And then I start paying attention again. I was aware of myself doing that, even at the time. And this is, and it's okay because I know there, there are parts you don't want to talk about, but we just jumped from like the mid 80s to the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Let me just ask, like, there's this whole history of like uh, farms and eventually the probably the AOL message boards or some of these internet forums like uh, like Flack or uh, View from the Foyer that preceded blogs and podcasts. Um, and, and of course, the AOL chat boards for people who cared about Mormon history or, or talking about difficult Mormon things. Were you plugged into any of that early either farms or Maxwell apologetics or fair, or were you plugged into any of those early internet Mormon discussion forums? As far as discussion forums, no, but farms, absolutely. The whole 1980s, I'm in Austin, Texas, going to undergrad and then to law school, which I finished in 1989, get a job up here in Washington in 1990 and I move. But during those entire 1980s, I am not only buying books. I mean, every week when I get my, or two weeks when I get my paycheck, right? I'm covering expenses, but I'm taking whatever I have left and I'm going up to North Austin to where there is an LDS bookstore in the back of some guy's house and I am buying books. So you're buying Hugh Nibley books. You're buying, yes. do you know who like, who's the Joseph Smith apologist guy that told all those stories about Joseph Smith? Uh, oh, Truman Madsen. Truman Madsen. Yeah. You're in all that stuff. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And of course, at the time, there's Farms Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies founded by John Welch. And they their whole point is to take all this scholarship, faithful scholarship, apologetic scholarship uh, about the Book of Mormon and make it publicly accessible before the Internet. So what they're doing is they're taking all these articles and they're just copying them off. And for the price of copying and postage, they will mail it to you. And so when, when Welch comes out with his Chiasma stuff, you would have known about it and been excited about it? Well, technically, he came out with it. Uh, well, he discovered it when he was on his mission in Germany in 1968. Okay. Uh, but then shortly after that, he came out with it. But I found out about it probably in the early 1980s. Okay. okay. I had this incredible experience because I was aware of it. I'm back from Washington, where I spent two months studying for the bar in 1989 and taking the bar at the end of July of 1989. I am now back in Texas, where I have to wait until October to find out whether I passed it. I did, thankfully. I had no idea what on earth I would do if I didn't pass it when that envelope came in the mail. But I've got a few months there where I'm clerking and I'm reading stuff and I, I'm continuing my, my, my studies. That was an interesting time. I have a lot of interesting times as far as this religion goes. One thing happened, was, which was uh, I discovered the most incredible chiasm in the entire Book of Mormon in Alma chapter 36. I'm reading through the Book of Mormon. I'm reading this and I see the very first thing. All of a sudden I notice the very first thing it says at the beginning of the chapter. It's the same thing as it says at the end of the chapter. So I'm aware of chiasmus by this time. And I go, well, that, that's weird. That, that's kind of weird. I look at the next thing. 
hey, that matches the thing at the the next uh, thing to the end. And this is a long chapter. You know, so where Alma is recounting his conversion experience. And I do this entire thing. I am absolutely mind blown. I'm so excited because I've discovered this huge chiasm in the book of Alma, in the book of Mormon. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. It was a little bit deflating to find out that, yeah, John Welch had figured it out a long time before I did. But it was like this whole process of discovering it. It was really exciting. Um, another thing that happened during these few months is, of course, uh, there were a series of books. There were like three books that were written and came out at the same time about the Mark Hoffman forgeries yeah, and the murders right? mid-80s, yes yeah. so he's doing that in the 80s but now it's 89 and now these people have had enough time to go back and do their research and there was one that's called the mormon murders one was called salamander. salamander yeah and then there was a third one i mean it was a lot of people had been working on this yeah. and i remember hearing that the one with the most um uh dramatic or over the top title mormon murders was actually the best i think i'm remembering that correct um but i went ahead i got it and i read it i did not like reading that there were parts in that I really did not like reading. I certainly didn't like where they're reading, you know, dramatizing Mark Hoffman being in a temple endowment, you know, that's over the top. They didn't need to do that. And I don't like the negative things that come across about church leaders, but I managed to turn my head enough and walk by it. The thing that I really remember... The, the church leaders being fooled by, you know, not, ha- not having the gift of discernment, being fooled by Mark Hoffman and trying to purchase documents to hide them so that the church wouldn't be embarrassed by what they thought was factual history. Like, had that, did that all occur to you at the time? No, no, because I'm big into making allowances at the time. Okay. I will make whatever excuse is necessary, which is something that happens over time. I'll, I'll come back to this book here in a second. But happens over time is that we are taught a version of Mormonism, which is, boom, it's incredible. It's prophet of God stuff, right? It's cats and dogs living together. It's everything. And you got a prophet of God receiving revelation. you got the priesthood of God, which performs miracles and healings. And that is the message of Mormonism. And I had got the golden ticket when I found Mormonism in 1978. And I am in. And then it just takes for freaking ever, for someone who's as stubborn as I am, to go along and start slowly and unconsciously letting go piece by piece and bit by bit of those claims that Mormonism has. And you do it by making excuses. Well, look, why should they know, you know, that this was a a forgery? Why should they uh, do all this? Well, you know, they're just people. God was, I don't, God was somewhere else in some other part of the universe handling, you know, important business at the time. And he wasn't there to tell them. Um, so it's, it's a lot of excuse making, I think that goes on. It's a really good question. It's making me think about this now, but the, but that wasn't it. The thing that I didn't like about uh, the book was when I was talking about Gordon B. Hinckley and, uh, being a, a detective coming to see him about this issue and the detective and, and Gordon B. Hinckley saying to him, um, are you a Mormon? Are you a Mormon? It was like always wanting to test to see whether this person was a member of the church to see how much influence he had over him. Yeah. It's a very small thing. How small is that compared to how big it is? You know, we're missing the fact that we're paying thousands of dollars for these fake documents and then hiding them away, hoping that we can keep the lid on this. And then this guy goes out and blows up people. Um, that's big. But it was just that little thing that, that needled me because I didn't like that. I didn't like that idea. I thought, that's not cool. He probably didn't do that really. I mean, this is Gordon B. Hinckley, Mr. Nice Guy. So, uh, but it bothered me. The other book that bothered me at the time was I'm reading a book by uh, Randy, the amazing Randy, James Randy. Yeah. <clears throat> Shout out to my friend Tyler Meesom who made the movie uh, An Honest Liar talking about the amazing Randy. If you haven't watched it, check it out. It's brilliant. I have, and I've been following him since the early 1970s because I was into magic, and there was a magic magazine, yeah. and I, you know, I was following his crusade against Uri Geller. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the fake psychic, or at least if I'm trying to be objective, a person who proclaims to be a psychic and do incredible things by real legitimate psychic powers and get lots of money for it, who um, James Randi, you know, hates his guts and is after him all the time, exposing him. So, but he had written a book, and I read it during this time, it's called Flim Flam. And it's about his Houdini-esque crusade to expose people who are doing magic tricks and pretending that they're real and bilking people out of money yeah. for it. Skepticism, basically. Yeah. So I love that about him. Now, that's kind of weird because here I'm a Mormon. 
But I'm reading this book and I, I'm totally tracking with him. Yeah, go get that Yuri Geller. Go get, go get that Pentecostal. Uh, I think his name was Popper. His last name was yeah, Popper, this yeah, Pentecostal yeah. preacher. Go do that. Go do that. Yeah, go get him. And then he has this little piece about Joseph Smith and the gold plates. And he doesn't go into depth. I mean, it's just like a, a side. Just, you know, this is like that. Interesting. I didn't like that. <laughs> Here, I agree with him 100% on everybody else, but now he comes to Joseph Smith, who fits in exactly. And no, no, he's got it all wrong there. So, you know, and that was just like a paragraph. And I just, well, I don't know. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable. Let me go back to reading the Book of Mormon or whatever it was I was doing. 